High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. You must Welcome to the new season of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. As promised, this brand new season grew out of suggestions made by listeners on our forum, which you can find on our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. A number of listeners asked us to explore the inner workings of the studio system and the moguls who ran the studios, helping to create the stars and establish the standard of filmmaking that came to define the great American movies of the 1920s through the early 1960s, otherwise known as the classical Hollywood era. Other listeners requested stories related to specific stars, films, or scandals within those studios and related to those moguls. As I went through this digital mailbag, one studio's name kept coming up. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The MGM Studios in Culver City. The stars you're seeing have all returned to MGM. The MGM studio. is a legend in the movie industry. Of all of the studios that produced films and stars during the first half of the 20th century, 
MGM was in many ways the gold standard. For many years, their movies were the biggest, their stars the starriest. MGM didn't always make the best or most innovative movies. In fact, they intentionally targeted a sweet spot, supporting productions that were neither highbrow nor low, which guaranteed escapist entertainment that was never vulgar or insulting, that promoted no political point of view or message other than a general endorsement of family life, that was proud to conform to the internal censorship of the production code, that transcended class difference while always staying classy. Nearly every movie that MGM made was engineered to be a movie that everyone, everywhere, would want to see. Or at the very least, that no one anywhere would have any objection to. Formed in 1924 thanks to the merger of the Lowe's Theatre Company with the struggling Metro Pictures and Goldwyn Productions and a promising upstart outfit led by a former scrap metal picker named Louis B. Mayer, MGM was the last studio in town to fully transition from silent feature production to sound, and this was an example of the studio's signature prudence as genius. MGM suffered the fewest growing pains of any studio during the transition from silence to sound, because by the time MGM started making talkies, a lot of the technological kinks had already been worked out by other studios. MGM would really come to define itself in the 1930s, as its two leaders, Mayer and the genius producer Irving Thalberg, worked together, and sometimes against one another, to produce movies like Grand Hotel, The Thin Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The Great Ziegfeld, and to discover and promote stars like Clark Gable, Greta Garbo, and Joan Crawford. This season is called MGM Stories. It's not intended as a comprehensive biography of the studio, but it's an exploration of 15 different narratives, which each help to illuminate how the signature studio of the studio era worked and why its legend still hangs over Hollywood today, even though the Sony name now hangs over the lot which Mayer and Thalberg once called home. We will explore stories involving Buster Keaton, Marion Davies, Jean Harlow, Mickey Rooney, Elizabeth Taylor, and many, many more stars. We'll talk about how MGM created stars and why, and tell many stories of the studio discarding stars once they had outlived their usefulness or when their personal lives failed to fall in line with MGM's family values mandate. We'll talk about what it was like to be a gay star in the 1920s, and a black star in the 1930s, and a child star in the 1940s. We'll talk about how the studio system began to crash and burn in the 1950s. And we'll hear from many of you, listeners who suggested these episode topics in our forum, like Dan Saracini. Hi, Karina. This is Dan from New Jersey. And I suggested the studio system as a topic for you must remember this because I find the fact that just five super powerful moguls were responsible for the production, writing, casting, and distribution of thousands of movies over the course of three decades, uh, both frightening and fascinating at the same time. Uh, the studios made the rules. There were a few laws to get in the way. No one to step up to them in any meaningful way at all. If you wanted to make it in show business, you had to play ball with guys like Louis B. Mayer and Jack Warner and Daryl Zanuck. You didn't have a choice. And if it sounds a lot like those mob movies that Warner made back then, well, that's probably by design. Somehow, despite all that, though, art emerged, beloved stars were made, millions of people were entertained throughout the Great Depression and even into the 60s using that studio system. Uh, Working within it must have been a nightmare 
And in the end, it needed to be torn down uh, so that independent filmmakers could get their movies seen by actual audiences. So it's a good thing that it's not around anymore, but at the same time, it's hard to imagine Hollywood being Hollywood that we know without it. Thanks a lot. And Emily Edmond. Hi, Karina. What interests me about the moguls is how their own personalities affected the movies they made, and thus the larger American culture. In today's episode, we'll begin to sketch out how MGM became MGM, tracing the studio through its first heyday in the 1930s, and exploring the partnership between the two executives who made the studio what it was, Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. Louis B. Mayer, called L.B. or Louis B. by his friends, and epithets like Jewish Hitler by his enemies— was the self-styled bad cop in MGM's executive partnership. He handled the money stuff, he did the firing, he delivered most of the bad news. Just be charming, Irving. He once told his partner, Thalberg. I'll be the prick. But Mayer also had a vision for how the studio with his name over the door should run and what kinds of movies it should make. By the mid-1930s, Mayer's vision and his contributions to MGM's content were frequently overshadowed by the public's perception of Thalberg as the creative mastermind who made MGM what it was. And then, in 1936, Thalberg died at the age of 37, after a few years of ill health exacerbated by his increasingly adversarial relationship with the rest of the studio. When Thalberg died, Mayer was able to step out of his shadow, for better and for worse. Join us won't you? For the first episode of our new season, MGM Stories. The story of how MGM became MGM begins with the story of one of the M's, Louis B. Mayer. Mayer had immigrated with his family from the Ukraine to Canada when he was a little boy. He dropped out of school as a preteen so that he could work sorting scrap metal to help feed his family. But he had bigger dreams. Beginning when he was a teenager, he loved the movies. At 19, he moved to Boston. And three years later, by which point he was married and the father to two daughters, he bought a local burlesque theater and turned it into a movie house. This led to owning a chain of theaters throughout New England. Mayer made the beginnings of a fortune from the profits on his exclusive, regional run of D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. As he later remembered, I pawned everything I owned, my house, my insurance, even my wife's wedding ring, just to get the New England state's rights. Since then, everything's been very pleasant. As a theater owner, Mayer had seen a direct correlation between high-quality stars, packaged correctly, and big profits. In 1918, Mayer moved his family to Los Angeles, where Louis B. Mayer Productions set up shop in half of a studio on Mission Road in East L.A. and started assembling a roster of stars. With the exception of Mildred Harris Chaplin, who came to Mayer looking for work after her divorce from Charlie, Most of Mayer's initial stars were newcomers in whom he saw something special, like a 21-year-old girl with a slightly lazy eye named Norma Shearer. In a time when other independent producers made their bones exploiting fads or promising titillation, 
And when the local and national newspapers were milking a wave of sex and drug scandals amongst the Hollywood elite for more than they were worth, Mayer would remain steadfastly moral and moralistic. The more the media harped on the Fatty Arbuckle rape allegations or Wallace Reed's heroin problem, the more Mayer was convinced that angry Christian mobs would eventually rise up and burn Hollywood to the ground, literally or figuratively, and figuratively might have been worse than literally. If this keeps up, there won't be any more film business, Mayer said. Mayer's personal morals would later come to infuse the kinds of movies that MGM made. He believed that movies should represent family values, that they should show viewers a better, idealized way of American life and American manhood, and that this kind of non-sexual vicarious pleasure should be enough. I don't care what DeMille does with his naked slave girls, Mayer once said, referring to the master of period film spectacle. No mayor picture will have bedroom scenes, even when couples are married. By the early 1920s, Mayer was looking to expand. At Paramount, they were making movies on an assembly line model. As soon as one production vacated a stage, another was ready to move in. Mayer figured more movies meant more profits, but he needed more staff to make it happen. In November 1922, Mayer invited Irving Thalberg to meet with him at his studio. Thalberg was known around town as a boy genius. At age 23, he had already been running production at Universal Studios for years. He was bored there and frustrated that his bosses were always trying to cut back. That wasn't Mayer's style. Mayer believed in spending money to make money. Mayer also, ever big on cinema as a mechanism for imagining an idealized self, saw in Thalberg something that he himself wanted to be. Thalberg was classy, and he liked making classy pictures based on literature. After their meeting, Mayer called Thalberg's lawyer and said, Tell him if he comes to work for me, I'll look after him like my own son. In February 1923, Thalberg and Mayer officially joined forces. Thalberg assimilated into Mayer's professional family quickly, even wooing and marrying Mayer's contract ingenue, Norma Shearer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit 
with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. As Mayer's studio was growing, across town, Samuel Goldwyn's studio was falling apart. After less than a decade in business, the former Samuel Gelbfizz's main asset was a massive studio lot bearing his Americanized name in the West Los Angeles neighborhood of Culver City. By March 1922, the board of Goldwyn Pictures pushed Goldwyn out of his own company. But the studio continued to bleed money, and by 1924, Goldwyn's chief executive went to Marcus Lowe, looking for a buyout. Marcus Lowe was the president and namesake of Lowe's, a massive movie theater chain. Lowe's had recently dipped a toe into the realm of production by purchasing Metro Pictures, an alma mater of Louis B. Mayer. Goldwyn's studio lot made them an attractive proposition for acquisition, but no one at Lowe's knew anything about using a studio lot, and clearly the guys at Goldwyn weren't geniuses at it either. Lowe's executive Nick Skank suggested bringing on Louis B. Mayer to run the new conglomerated studio. Louis B. Mayer knew that this was his big shot at the big time, and he jumped at it, on the condition that he could bring Thalberg with him. On May 16, 1924, the deal was done. Lowe's would combine Metro Pictures with Goldwyn and Louis B. Mayer Productions to produce Metro Goldwyn. Their initial movies were branded as a Metro-Goldwyn picture produced by Louis B. Mayer. This was unwieldy enough that within a few months, the studio's name officially became Metro-Goldwyn Mayer, or MGM. Over the next 10 years, as the silent era faded away and sound film came in and gradually became more sophisticated... Every studio in town would establish a house style, often tied to their mastery of a specific genre. Warner Brothers would become known for movies about and for the working classes, often involving gangsters. Paramount, home of sophisticated stars like Claudette Colbert and Marlena Dietrich, produced at two poles, B-movies for the plebes and sophisticated special productions shot on big white sets for a specialized audience. MGM tried to reduce the space in between those two poles, to neither talk down to a presumably uneducated audience, nor flatter the higher echelon of the audience with Tony entertainments that bored the common man to death. They didn't take a lot of risks, and they were careful not to offend. Their goal was to make movies that anybody wanted to go see. That said, both Mayer and Thalberg would occasionally push through production, a film that they sensed or even knew wouldn't make any money. Thalberg liked to support prestige pictures, like The Crowd, King Vidor's downbeat, experimentally realistic treatment of the American dream, movies that would advance the medium in some way, which at the very least made MGM look forward-thinking, even if, when it came to the big picture, they really weren't. But if Mayer supported an MGM film that he knew wasn't going to turn a profit, it was likely because he was trying to prove a point. 
The great actress Lillian Gish signed with MGM and told Mayer she wanted to star in an adaptation of The Scarlet Letter. This was both too Tony and too racy for Mayer's personal tastes, and he tried to talk her out of it. Miss Gish, how are we going to show that on the screen without running into the censors? We can't show you and that minister just holding hands and staring into each other's eyes. Audiences have grown up. They know a baby's gonna come of this lovemaking. How do you propose to show that? Duly warned, Gish still wanted to proceed, and MGM put their best talent behind the production. The film turned a profit, but not what Mayer considered to be a Lillian Gish-sized profit. But as he had suspected, the fan magazines made a laughingstock of Gish for trying to play the mature role. Now Mayer had texts to point to the next time Gish, or any star, felt determined to step outside of their Mayer-designated comfort zone. In fact, a large part of MGM's increasing power had to do with the studio's symbiotic relationship with the emerging field of movie fan magazines. These magazines were essentially controlled by the studios, who vetted most copy before it made it to print. MGM's reach extended into the mainstream press, too. Each star had a publicist assigned to be their babysitter and protector. If an MGM star got into a bad situation, with one phone call, their personal studio publicist could make sure it either wouldn't make the morning papers at all, or if it did, it would only be as a blind item. Columnists and reporters were willing to acquiesce when it came to burying or glossing over a juicy story because they knew the studio would reward them with access later on. It was also a different time with different standards. Sheila Graham would later say that when she had gotten her start as a gossip columnist in Hollywood in the 1930s, it was simply accepted as fair play that you did not write about the romances of married men. Infidelity was perhaps small potatoes. As writer Bud Schulberg later put it, thanks to MGM's massive influence over the district attorney, to whom Mayer was the primary campaign financier, not to mention the police and the press, you could literally have someone killed, and it wouldn't be in the papers. The outside perception of MGM was that it was the studio where stars ruled, and they were the lure that secured the audience, but they weren't generating their own material or making choices about how to ensure career longevity. Much of that was the work of Irving Thalberg. MGM was always conservatively politically minded, but the labor on MGM films was often collective. Thalberg regularly cobbled together screenplays from the efforts of a team of writers, not unlike the contemporary television writer's room, but very unlike what was common at other studios in the 1930s. One thing MGM definitely was not was a studio friendly to auteur directors. Both Mayer and Thalberg were attracted to unpretentious efficiency. They respected directorial talent. That's why they let Eric von Stroheim finish out his contract, even after he delivered a 10-hour cut of Greed, which the studio deemed unreleasable. And with his next film, The Merry Widow, von Stroheim scored a massive hit. But no director at MGM was indispensable. 
Thanks to the grosses of massive silent hits like The Big Parade, The Merry Widow, and Ben-Hur, MGM boldly staked a claim for the studio and its style of filmmaking in its first year. These successes proved to the industry, and maybe more importantly, to MGM's own internal power structure, that Mayer and Thalberg's way of doing things worked. For both men, preserving the MGM way became of paramount importance. That was one of the reasons why, in January 1927, Mayer spearheaded the formation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, paying out of his own pocket to host the Academy's first dinner party at the Biltmore Ballroom, where 36 industry leaders met and discussed the goals of their organization. At first, the Academy existed to present a unified front amongst the studios and town power brokers on the questions of the day, such as standardization issues regarding the emerging sound technologies and the increasing threat of unionization amongst the various factions of filmmakers. The Oscars came later, nearly two and a half years later. The first award ceremony was not until May 1929. By this point, Mayer had decided that using his power to net his filmmakers' trophies was a good way to make them grateful to be at MGM, and thus make them more willing to make movies the MGM way. But sometimes, Mayer would put the MGM way above actual MGM movies. The first Oscars weren't so much balloted on as negotiated upon by some of the most powerful people in late 1920s Hollywood, including Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Sid Grauman, and L.B. Mayer. Grauman, who owned a chain of movie theaters, supported Vider's The Crowd for Best Picture. The Crowd was an MGM movie, but it was one of Thalberg's pet productions, and Mayer hated it. He thought it was both pretentious and vulgar, disparaging Vidor for insisting on including a shot of a toilet. Mayer refused to support his own studio's movie. And so, the first Best Picture Oscar went to the Clara Bow fighter pilot movie, Wings. By 1928, Mayer had risen to the point where he was in constant contact with the newly elected president, Herbert Hoover, to whom the studio chief began suggesting candidates for appointments to positions like the L.A. City tax collector. Every man, Mayer suggested to Hoover, ended up getting the job. Mayer's friends in the highest of places came in handy in February 1929, when out of nowhere, or at least that was how it seemed to Mayer, William Fox of Fox Studios made a deal to purchase MGM's parent company, Lowe's, exchanging $15 million of mostly borrowed money for all of their holdings, including the movie theaters and MGM. Suddenly, Mayer's job was in serious jeopardy. Luckily, through Hoover, LB had friends in the Justice Department who were all set to declare the merger a violation of antitrust laws when the stock market crashed. And Fox, almost overnight, lost the financial wherewithal to go through with the deal. The whole mess had taught Mayer an important lesson. Nick Skank at Lowe's was his mortal enemy. Of course, Nick Skank was also Mayer's boss. When asked, Mayer would insist that MGM was a happy family. Our people are bound together by love. We have no hate here. We have love. I love Irving. 
I love everybody except John Gilbert, Sam Goldwyn, and Charlie Chaplin. But privately, Mayer was paranoid that no one valued his contributions to the success of the studio. And certainly internally, Nick Skank was looking for reasons to push him out. And in the outside world, everyone thought Thalberg was the real genius. Mayer became determined to put his own signature on the studio by amassing a bench of talent so deep and so starry that the other studios wouldn't be able to compete. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. To the general public, Mayer was amongst the most famous of studio heads. And within Hollywood, other moguls resented and envied him. But within his own family, LB was the red-headed stepchild. Mayer felt uncool and uncouth compared to Thalberg, and the slightest perceived slight from his supposed partner could reduce Mayer to tears. For his part, Thalberg was exhausted and starting to feel like all the hard work wasn't worth it. As early as September 1932, he asked the rest of the MGM brass to grant him a year's leave of absence. I don't feel well, he said. The responsibility is too great. I would like to go away and come back and then see what I want to do. But Thalberg was under contract until 1937, and the parent company was not about to let him off that hook. Nick Skank told him that he could leave, but Lowe's would sue him. So Thalberg went back to work. But now he was certain that the other powerful men at the studio, including Mayer, were actively against him. At Christmas 1932, Thalberg came down with the flu. Three days later, he began suffering from chest pains, which were later confirmed to be a heart attack. Thalberg now had doctor's orders to back him up. He was going to take six months and go to a heart clinic in Germany. How would it look for the studio's professed family values ethos if the MGM power circle tried to stop him from taking time off now? His very real health problems aside, Thalberg must have known that if he was going to leave work for six months, MGM would need to replace him, at least temporarily. And Mayer et al. must have been concerned that there was a possibility that Thalberg wouldn't come back at all. Still, Mayer's approach to finding a fill-in for Thalberg was seen by some as kinda unseemly. 
after Thalberg announced his planned six-month leave of absence, Mayer signed David O. Selznick to a two-year contract. Selznick had spent the previous two years as the head of production at RKO, where he had helped to launch the careers of both George Cukor and Katharine Hepburn with the film A Bill of Divorcement. He had helped to enshrine Hollywood's favorite myth about itself with the A Star is Born precursor What Price Hollywood, and he had helped to invent the future with the original King Kong. Selznick was 30, he was hungry, and his resume, though short, was solid. He was a good hire. He was also Louis B. Mayer's son-in-law, having married Mayer's daughter Irene three years earlier. Mayer mitigated the appearance of nepotism by dividing Thalberg's duties amongst a number of executives, including Selznick, Walter Wanger, and Eddie Mannix. But Thalberg still felt betrayed. Thalberg's acolytes, including his wife Norma Shearer and MGM screenwriter Anita Luce, claimed that Thalberg wasn't made aware of Selznick's hiring until he was already in Europe. But Mayer's biographer, Scott Eyman, says Mayer went to Thalberg's house before the latter decamped for Europe to break the news. No matter what happened between Mayer and Thalberg, the fact was the two men had a common enemy in Nick Skank in the New York corporate office of Lowe's. In addition to his undercutting of Mayer, Skank had long been hoping to remake MGM in the model of other studios, like Warner's and Paramount, which didn't spend the kind of money that MGM spent on a typical picture, even on its most prestigious pictures. Before he left for Europe, Thalberg submitted a lengthy memo to Skank, protesting this plan. The core of Thalberg's protest had to do with the studio's stars, who had been carefully chosen and cultivated and were paid accordingly. Thalberg told Skank that if they were going to start making the kinds of movies that Warner's made, then eventually they would lose all of their top flight stars. And if that happened, then MGM itself might as well cease to exist. More than any single person in Hollywood, Thalberg once said, I have my finger on the pulse of America. But Thalberg should have known better. He himself had helped to create MGM as a place that was unfriendly to men acting alone, a place where movies were made by committee. His certainty that he alone knew what was best for MGM and his unwillingness to cede his vision to the larger machine would aid the corporate office's attempt to marginalize him. When Thalberg returned from Europe in August 1933, Skank gave him his own production unit. Thalberg would have his own bungalow on the MGM lot, he'd have his own budgets, his pick of the best stars in the studio's stable, and minimal supervision from the suits above. And he'd have no real say in how the studio was run as a whole. In essence, Mayer had won, consolidating power in his own house, by bringing in his son-in-law to replace a man who he had once promised to treat as a son. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Thalberg continued to produce important money-making pictures, including Oscar winners Mutiny on the Bounty and The Good Earth, China Seas, a very solid Tegar net boat movie starring Gene Harlow and Clark Gable, and a number of vehicles for Thalberg's wife, Norma Shearer, including the Barretts of Wimpole Street and Romeo and Juliet. With the latter two films, Thalberg aimed to secure his wife's legacy as one of the great stars, so that she could retire before she got too old. Shearer was 33 in 1935, and she was still beautiful, but her career was in transition. She had won an Oscar in 1930 for the very pre-code film The Divorcee, which she had followed up with a number of films about liberated, if not loose, women, including Strangers May Kiss and A Free Soul. These movies were pretty tame in terms of what they actually depicted. They had to be to pass Mayer's strict standards when it came to bedroom scenes. But after the industry-wide enforcement of the production code in 1934, which strictly legislated stories involving sex and marriage, MGM couldn't make movies like The Divorcee at all. And this is when Thalberg decided that his wife should transition into a prestige queen. A woman in her mid-30s who had been previously known as an avatar for sexual sophistication was maybe not the best choice to play Shakespeare's doomed teenage lover, but the casting wasn't the real problem. Romeo and Juliet would make Thalberg even more of a pariah at MGM, and with Mayer specifically. Thalberg tinkered obsessively on set, stretching production out for over 100 days, a budgetary abomination as far as Mayer was concerned, especially since Shakespeare wasn't exactly a safe bet at the box office. Mayer was never opposed to spending money on quality, but as far as he was concerned, this kind of thing was throwing good money at bad ego. When a producer tells me he has a prestige picture, Mayer said, I know we're going to lose money. In this case, he was right. Romeo and Juliet was the 13th highest grossing film of 1936, but it was so expensive to make that it ended up losing almost a million dollars. The two highest-grossing films of that year were San Francisco and The Great Ziegfeld, both MGM crowd-pleasers, which Thalberg had had nothing to do with. By this point, Mayer and Thalberg were barely speaking. Studio employees took sides. Today, if you look at quotes from those who chose the Thalberg camp, they tend to call their alma mater Metro, rather than use the acronym incorporating Mayer's name. The mayor partisans had a perception that Thalberg was kicking back, lazily tooling with vanity projects for his wife. In fact, he was in pre-production on the Shearer starring Marie Antoinette, but Irving Thalberg didn't know how to kick back. Though his health had never fully improved, he was still working 12-hour days. In early September 1936, Irving and Norma finally took a long-promised vacation, to the same coastal cottage where they had spent their honeymoon. But while on vacation, Irving got sick. By the time they made it back to Los Angeles, his cold had turned into pneumonia. By September 13th, 
he was in a coma. On September 14, 1936, Irving Thalberg died at the age of 37. Despite the division on the lot over the previous few years, Thalberg's death united MGM in grief. Executives were in tears. Everyone was sent home for the day. Even other studios held five minutes of silence out of respect for Thalberg. The animosities weren't forgotten, but they were put on hold. Mayer issued a statement. I have lost my associate of the past 14 years and the finest friend a man could ever have. There is so very much to be said about Irving Thalberg, but there are so few words with which to say it, and the shock is too great. If you can't say something nice... There are reports that privately... Mayer was counting his blessings. There were also reports that he was legitimately upset that Thalberg had passed before the relationship could be repaired. Shearer said that Thalberg certainly regretted the way that he and Mayer had left things. Definitely, with the death of Thalberg, an anxiety started to spread through the MGM family. It felt like the end of an era, and nobody knew what would happen next. Nobody other than Louis B. Mayer, who felt confident in his own ability to pick talented people out of the crowd and put them on the pedestal they deserved. After all, he had done it with Irving Thalberg. Mayer knew that there was a general suspicion that now that Thalberg was dead, MGM was going to die with him. Mayer was determined to prove everyone wrong and remind them all that he was the last man standing with his name above the studio. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is proud to have joined the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of Panoply shows at itunes.com slash Panoply. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, that's me, and it was edited by Henry Malofsky. Our research intern on the show is Allison Gemmill, and this week we were proud to welcome a new special guest, Craig Mazin, who played Louis B. Mayer. Craig Mason and John August do the excellent podcast Script Notes, which you can find by searching for Script Notes on iTunes or at johnaugust.com slash podcast. I'd like to thank a number of listeners who have donated to the show over the past few weeks. If you'd like to donate, go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. All money donated goes to help pay for people like our intern, Allie, um, and to help support the production of the show going forward. So thank you to Jennifer Reynolds, Andrew Gardner, Deborah Sapp, Scott from Fuel Cafe, Rachel Apatoff, Laura Mulligan, and Alan Glynn. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes of the show at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And if you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. We'll be back next week. 
with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.